Hey everybody, this is your co-host Chuck. I just wanted to make a quick note before we start this episode. We recorded this a while ago, um, actually while we were recording and uh, publishing season one, and we decided to hold on to it um, and release it as part of season two just because we we thought it would fit a little better. Uh, So a couple of the references that we make are slightly dated. They're not super notable. Also, Tim's book, Rethinking Everything, is currently available for purchase. At the time that we recorded this, he was still working on it. Uh, That is no longer the case. The book is available. You should go check it out. Uh, quick trigger warning as well. Uh, we do t- This episode is about conversion therapy. If that's something that's in your past um, or any kind of uh, uh, trauma surrounding your sexuality, this uh, could be a triggering episode. Um, yeah, without any further ado, here is our new episode, Gay Conversion Therapy Part 2. Three years ago, I was attending one of the largest churches in Dallas, and I knew that I was gay. I knew that I was struggling, and I was desperate for some kind of help or to at least talk to somebody about it. So I went to this event called Recovery at the church that met weekly, and it was my first time going. We split up into groups between men and women, about like 15 to 20 people. And I remember going around the circle, and everybody was just sharing why they came tonight. It was very peer pressured to speak and everybody was really just codifying their sins saying they struggle with anger instead of punching a hole in the wall saying they struggle with lust instead of specifically saying pornography and when it got to me i said that i struggled with homosexuality and it felt good it felt good to get it off my chest and say it and then the guy right after me just said uh i struggle with lust but i'm not gay or anything (laughs) i didn't go back When I was in my early teens, I realized that I was interested in men sexually. There were a lot of experiences in my life that could have pointed to me being gay, but it finally got to my brain that I was attracted to men. I was terrified of what it meant to be gay. My mom told me horror stories of families that died of AIDS. Kids in Sunday school referred to men as fags, as the Sunday school teacher lamented how wicked the world was becoming. I sought out a Christian counselor to talk about my same-sex attractions. It turned out that he was a closeted gay man himself. He'd hit on me in our sessions and tell me of the things he wanted to do to me sexually. And I white-knuckled it, trying to hold on to whatever I thought purity was. In one of our last sessions, he advised me to drop my pants. I left our session feeling terribly guilty for making a married Christian man stumble like that. I believed I should have known better. A while later, I started conversion therapy with a man who worked for an affiliate of Exodus International, Free Indeed Ministries. My new mentor taught me to butch it up, don't act gay, don't dress gay, suppress, and seek a relationship with Jesus. But Jesus was silent, and the gay wasn't going away. One night, I sat in my room crying. In my hands were a bunch of strong sedatives. The pills were to help me sleep when all my brain could do was hate myself. I wanted to swallow them all and hopefully make it all stop. I didn't though, and I'm grateful for that. I finally came out, and it's taken 13 years to get a fairly healthy place mentally. When I was younger, my upbringing told me that I was without options. So I made choices, and I thought I could please God, my parents, and my family at church. But now, I advocate for queer folk to make healthy choices for their own lives.
I remember my mom screaming that there was no God. I remember my father laughing at me, telling me that God doesn't make mistakes, that I couldn't be right. Oh, you want to be a big, strong man? Well, you're not. You're a woman. I remember when they asked me if I was possessed, if I had been molested, if something had happened to me. I remember telling my therapist about how before all of this, I had come out to someone else and I had been correctively raped because of it, because they wanted to prove to me how I wasn't a man. I remember going to church and talking to my pastor, telling him, I have an idea. I want this church to be a safer place for LGBT kids, I want them to feel comfortable getting to know God. He said, that's an amazing idea. How would you do that? How would you make that connection? And I said, well, I think it'll be easy because I'm transgender. Immediately, I lost every leadership role I held in that ministry. I could no longer get up on stage and play an instrument because if I did, that would be them approving of my lifestyle. If I was in a leadership role, I could possibly lead other kids astray. It would look bad, he said. I have to do what I have to do. I have to think about the bigger picture. This man, this mentor, my youth pastor, someone I had trusted, immediately abandoned me. He told everyone that I was transgender. All of leadership knew. Every adult called me by the wrong name. All of the kids called me by the wrong pronouns. It felt like I couldn't do anything right. The fact that someone that he thought was a leader, that he thought was dedicated, was transgender, scared the shit out of him. And he went so far as to invite a conversion therapy expert to come and talk to the kids in our church. Hi, this is Joel Barrett with JoelSpeaksOut.com. I'm an LGBTQ writer, speaker, gatherer. Uh, I grew up in an independent fundamental Baptist church kind of environment, very conservative, very uh, legalistic, and uh, went into ministry. And when I was in my 30s, things kind of came to a head and I decided to try to get help. And so I contacted Exodus International, the largest ex-gay ministry in the world at that time, and started seeing a counselor who was the head of the state of Indiana for Exodus. Then I was referred to another counselor closer to me later on, and I ended up spending what was almost three years in ex-gay therapy. Um, The the problem with it for me is that it was mostly a pray the gay away kind of thing. And so for three years, I was focused on my sexuality, behavior modification, and spent tons of time praying, talking through all of the stuff in my life, trying to figure out, you know, where the pieces were that made me who I am. And, and then praying and the counselor binding evil spirits that were confusing me and so on and so forth. And three years of my life spent feeling like something was horribly wrong with me and that there was this spiritual warfare going on and that I needed to change all of this. And it was not a healthy environment. And I also feel like I wasted three years of life when I could have just been trying to be the best me and accepting who I am. So that was my uh, experience with ex-gay therapy in a nutshell. There's a whole lot more to the story, but it's upsetting to me that uh, this is still happening and I'm concerned about legislation that's getting ready to be passed because it does not include faith-based organizations who are primarily doing this kind of stuff. That's my story, Joel Barrett, joelspeaksout.com. 
I met Bruce in February of 2009. He was a tall uh, cowboy in his 30s with his shirt always tucked into his jeans and the really oversized belt buckle. He had really kind eyes and an incredible smile. He was from Florida, married with three young children and he showed me their photo. It was a beautiful family indeed. And like myself, Bruce loved Jesus. He was a devoted follower, as was his entire family. And Bruce was attracted to men, and I was as well. And I knew this, not because he told me, but because he didn't have to. Bruce and myself and about 20 others had just arrived at a gay conversion therapy camp for men who struggled with what was referred to as unwanted same-sex attraction, and we were about to spend the next two days together trying to fix that. My therapy started when I was 24 years old. I had been attracted to men from my earliest memories, even as a child, I, I knew that I was different. My Southern Baptist evangelical upbringing obviously created issues for my sexuality that always left me working on myself uh, reading and studying, accountability partners, purity culture, um, all of these things stripping me of my sexuality, telling me there was something deeply wrong with me that needed to be fixed. And I was determined to fix it. So I began with a Christian counselor, saw him weekly for about four years before this idea of the conversion therapy camp was suggested. It was kind of a last-ditch effort after I'd stalled in my progress toward heterosexuality. <clears throat> the camp brochure was hopeful. The statistics uh, were of men completing the program and reporting a significant decrease in same-sex attractions and an increase in opposite-sex attractions using the methods from the camp. The camp was held in different cities all over the U.S., some international uh, sites as well, all throughout the year. And it wasn't ascribed to any specific religion. Um, and when they spoke of, uh, of religion, it was only in the higher power sense and that type of terminology. But everyone that I met there was religious, mostly Mormon. And there was a handful of us Jesus followers like Bruce and me. <clears throat> Bruce was the first person that I met at the camp in a exercise, one-on-one -on -one exercise in which I confided in him about the physical and emotional abuse of my peers all through my school years. Bruce was incredibly understanding and I could see the tears welling up in his eyes as I gave my account of what it was like to grow up with the constant bullying and hate every day and living in fear. He told me he was sorry and he hugged me and he wept with me. It was a beautiful dose of healing that I deeply needed especially in the midst of the rest of that weekend uh, at the camp, which was filled with processes and methods that created more damage than good for me um, that I would spend the next years unpacking and undoing. But even with all of the negative of the conversion therapy experiences that weekend, Bruce and his empathy and his compassion are a beautiful memory that I treasure to this day. It was on the organization's secret Facebook group a few months after the camp that I learned that Bruce had took his own life. He'd given up the fight and he couldn't take it anymore. 
I also learned that his deeply fundamentalist wife, who knew of his attractions to men, believed he was possessed by a demon that had caused them, and she decided for some reason to cut him off completely from any support that he had developed in the organization. And at the end, Bruce just had no one left to offer him any hope or any way out. The moment all of this went down is the moment I can point to that something in me broke. A hairline fracture in my faith was created and the questions and uncertainty began. And now, 10 years later, it's pretty much all falling apart for me. The conversion therapy camp didn't deliver on its promises for me. It failed me. It failed Bruce. But I think even more importantly, our faith failed us. This camp would not need to exist if it weren't for the many religions that push people there to further enforce the lie that there's something broken within them. Bruce was a beautiful, beautiful person whose empathy and love helped me on my journey. And I wish the faith that he believed in so much would not have failed him. He deserved better. Curtis, I'm gonna. We're gonna pretend that you just answered the phone. Are you ready for this? All right. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Curtis, it's Brady from the Life hey, After. How's it uh, going? We're doing another episode on conversion therapy. We wanted to check in with you and see how things are going. Well, um, since since I've been on on um, your podcast, I've become the executive director of One Million Kids for Equality. Things are good. Um, I've been I've do, been doing a lot of outreach. Uh, I was just in um, Southern Illinois. Uh, last week talking to some high school students about my experience in conversion therapy and Ew. going to different, um, yeah, well, yeah. Well, Just high school students know, so. and conversion therapy. Yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah. It's all bad, but it's fine. <laughs> no, um, but it, it's good. Um, working with uh, promo, um, they're starting the conversation about conversion therapy here in Missouri. Um, and I've just been, you know, continuing doing my activism like I normally do. So it's, it's been, it's been real good. That's awesome. I love that you do that. Uh, speaking of conversion therapy, if that's the best transition <laughs> into a conversation, I don't know what is. Yeah, great. <laughs> but, uh, today we're, we're actually going to be talking to somebody who, uh, was a part of doing conversion therapy. He helped run, wow. uh, one of the organizations who did that really early on. Uh, I mean, he's definitely turned against it and he's very, he's an advocate against it now mm -hmm. but um i was wondering do right. you have any questions that you would like to ask somebody who actually was on the other i mean as you talked about in your episode previously on our podcast you went in a way went through conversion therapy you went through that counseling yeah. about changing mm -hmm. who you are and everything like that um have you ever thought about what you would want to ask somebody who was on the other side of that table um wow uh that's a really big question. I guess it would just be um, like what – well, first of all, like what led you to um, do that, right? Like yeah. what 
with all of the, you know, is since, you know, it's been out there since the 20s that conversion therapy is probably not a good thing, right? Um, so I guess just kind of like what what led you to, to that path and why you thought that was a good idea? And then maybe, um, you know, what would be the best way to uh, combat this issue? Like, you know, from the inside perspective, what are some ways we can start changing people's minds yeah. and educating them to let them know that this is something that is bad and not working, yeah, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, because, you know, we're doing a lot with education and uh, stuff like that, but from an inside perspective, what what would what would be recommended for us to do that we should really focus on that maybe we aren't or that we aren't putting enough emphasis on, right? That's great. Yeah, I'll be sure to ask him that today when we interview him, okay? Yeah, 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 please do. Well, cool. Well, thank you so much for catching up with us. We really appreciate it. And everybody, remember, you can go back and listen to our old episodes, episode eight, Conversion Therapy uh, with Curtis. Thanks a lot, Curtis. You have a good one. Absolutely. Thank you. You too. This is Brady Harden, uh, you know, the gay host with a kid. <laughs> on this episode, we are tackling conversion therapy for gay people. We touched on the subject last year by talking to my friend Curtis, who went to it and now is advocating to end it. But this year, we wanted to approach the unsavory topic from a different perspective. We wanted to hear from somebody who let it and then left. Our guest, Tim, grasped my attention when he talked about the two-sided life that people like me and him lived when we were both active Christians and inactively gay. I knew exactly what he meant when he, okay, spoiler alert, explained how they would dismiss science uh, of when it talked about the damage of repressing your sexuality or the inability to alter it permanently by will. But I was in the same boat. I, like Tim and our other leaders of conversion therapy, believed that God could, quote, fix us. Or keep us docile enough not to do any damage. But the hope and the help never arrived for me. But eventually I realized that there was nothing for me to fix. A very close family member took me out to lunch recently for my birthday. Which, by the way, Chuck, I'm still waiting for my present. And mentioned how they feel my son is living in Sodom and Gomorrah. My heart sank at first, and I was so conflicted because this family member just got finished saying how they trust me as a great father. However inappropriate it was, I saw a similar duality of realities in their minds that I used to live with. They believed what they were taught, and they could see conflicting information with their own eyes. It isn't easy. And when talking about Christian fundamentalism, there is a looming threat of hell over the heads of those who, quote, struggle with same-sex attraction, and to those who fear they may push somebody to an eternity in hell by accepting a gay person. But after a talk with boundaries, how to handle differences, and showing that I don't proactively try to change my family members' beliefs, and therefore I deserve the same, it actually turned out to be a great birthday lunch. For many of us that were Christian, mostly fundamentalists, but also liberals too, while realizing we are LGBTQ+, may recognize this dual reality. Not always as two-faced people trying to get away with as much as they could, but, but no, the inner conflict was hell and dominated my thoughts for years and years and years. 
It took our energy to fight ourselves, and it took our energy to be fought by ourselves. Many of us were our own punishers in endless shame cycles, perpetuated by the GOP or right-wing talking points or whatever messages we heard in church. When people try to convince me to come back to the faith, they often forget that in addition to the spiritual abuse I encountered, there was also 14 years of God ignoring my prayers or allowing me to suffer in a misunderstanding. I applaud gay Christians who are actual peace with their sexuality and faith. If it works for them, I think that's wonderful, but a part of me is sad knowing that some people in their own faith will never accept them. Listen to Tim's story. He has overcome so much and is now working to fix the prejudices that caused him so much inner conflict. Notice how he turned his dark past into a brighter future for himself and others. He was wired to go back and help the people that he can empathize with. Not everyone should or could, but I'm guessing that it may inspire somebody listening. Here's our episode of Tim Rimmel, a former leader of Faith in Action, Gay Conversion Therapy, and a current kick-ass, out-and-proud, married author of Going Gay and Rethinking Everything. Chuck, welcome back, everyone. Uh, I'm Brady Harden, and with me is... Chuck Parson. Chuck, I'm really excited about interviewing our guest today. Um, when I started going through all of his materials and reading about him and watching his YouTube videos, I think I have a little bit of a man crush. Okay, all right, yeah. well... Is that the right term? Because since I'm gay... I don't, re- I don't know the... I don't make the rules, just be a, Brady. Would it just be a... I don't know. Is it a regular crush? No, I know. It's just one of those things, like, if you were to say man crush... <laughs> But I just feel like it's different because I'm gay, so it's you know what I mean. Like, uh, yeah, I don't. It's heteronormative. I don't know, man. That's a heteronormative thing to say, man crush. I I avoid heteronormativity at all costs. I appreciate as that. often as possible. Thank so you. So I won't neither affirm nor deny that your statement was heteronormative. Hey, I won't. I won't ask, and you won't tell. Right. Uh, today we have Tim Rimmel with us. Um, welcome to the show, Tim. Thank you. Appreciate that. Hey, uh, you're welcome. Um, Tim, I, I just wanted to start off with a really important question. That is, what what is the gay agenda? <laughs> Wait, why well, are you laughing? <laughs> but, you know, because it's in my house, it's whoever gets home first has to put the dishes away and then you finish laundry and make sure the kids got home. <laughs> oh, <laughs> man. Right. Um, so you uh, you are a gay man who has children. And uh, I am excited about interviewing you because I feel like I'm interviewing myself at a different timeline or at a different part of, you know what I mean? Like some wrinkle in time stuff happened and now I'm able to interview myself in a different dimension because uh, I think that we have some pretty similar backgrounds. Yes, I am older than you. <laughs> that was my polite way of, this, right? That was what I was trying to say, but really politely. Right, I right, use right. science fiction as a veil. I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, tell us about your background. What kind of church did you grow up in, and what did that look like for you? I grew up in the Pentecostal Church of God until I was about six years old, and then we left. I grew up in Salinas, California, which is about three hours south of Sacramento, where I'm living now, and. It was very expressive. There was a lot of dancing, a lot of moving, a lot of uh, rolling in the aisles, uh, a lot of being slain in the spirit. So I basically fell asleep on the front pews with very loud music and all of the activity going on around me. 
And then when we moved to Sacramento, we attended the more sophisticated Assemblies of God Church. So the, the hype <laughs> stopped, but it was still very expressive, a lot of worship, um, you know, very emotional. So that was my background growing up. So when I became a Christian at the age of 15, I brought that with me. I mean, really, you know, at, at what point, I guess, do you say that you've become a Christian, but you're still kind of maintaining the same lifestyle that you had before, right? Yeah. Um, so that that was really all that I ever knew was growing up in that environment. And my grandfather had a second grade education, but whatever his experience was, he became a Christian when he was living in Missouri and travel. He brought the whole family down with him to California. So they actually moved here to for work. Um, and his family, the 16 kids that survived, um, they just picked fruit up and down the coast of California and Washington and Oregon. And oh then he would, he would go preach wherever he could find a place to preach. So, uh, you know, that, that was really all I knew of him. And I just remember when we had birthdays and get togethers or the family would get together, he was the one that would pray over the meals and it was always in tongues and it was always very expressive. And oh, so wow. I just always, I always thought, well, here's, this is the man of God. This is what, um, this is how life is supposed to be. So, you know, and I was an introvert too, you know, so watching all of this and listening to all of this, it was an extension of who I was as part of the family. But at the same time, as an introvert and as somebody who is more analytical, I think I, I, I watched it, I questioned it, and yet I accepted it for what it was. I believe that that's what Christianity was. So, of mm. course, by the time I became a Christian, that was what I believed was expected of me and what my life would look like um, going forward. But your your life didn't kind of go forward like it was supposed to as a Christian, you know, where everything's kind of easy and everything. There was an obstacle that got in the way. What was that obstacle? Right. So I realized I was gay about 14 years old, 13, 14, somewhere around that time frame. And there was this sudden rush, this total fear of realizing, oh, my gosh, this is not going to pass. This is really who I am. And spending the next several years pleading with God, asking God, begging God to take this thing away from me. Um, so, at the, you know, putting that in the mix for me, there was a long period of time where there was a lot of shame. There was a lot of guilt. There was a lot of hiding. There was a lot of crying and pleading with God and reading the Bible and trying to figure out how can this possibly be? And then it was just shoving all of these feelings down and denying that they even existed because being the man of faith that I was raised to be, I knew that whatever I asked of God, God would grant that for me. I knew that homosexuality was a sin, so that couldn't be who I was. And I just took on the persona of what a Christian should be rather than who I actually was. And so for the next 10 years, between the ages of about 14 to 24, um, I just I did everything I could to stop it and denied that I had those feelings. But I did finally talk to somebody, I think it was about you know, 17 or 18 or somewhere in there, and just trying to get perspective on that. But of course, when you talk about being a gay kid in a fundamentalist church, it's instantly turned around that, oh my gosh, this is terrible. We have to cast a demon out of you, which is what one pastor did. Another wow. pastor that, wow. I, that, I, that I talked to who I thought was my confidant, as soon as I left, went and he went to his senior pastor and told him that I was gay. Um, you know, and then I had a girlfriend at that point, which was a complete disaster. And the funny story is we actually connected again after about 30 years of seeing each other and had a good, good laugh about when she set up this really romantic dinner for me. And I just wasn't interested. And she thought there was something wrong with her. Yeah, I think um, I saw that on Will and Grace. Yeah, that, right? that, uh, <laughs> I mean, that beats uh, uh, coming out to her in a Walmart parking lot like Brady did with a date. 
ones. That's true, yeah. So. <laughs> One of our guests that we've had on this show, I tried to go on a date with her like 12 years ago, and I tried to hold her hand in a Walmart parking lot, and it was really awkward, because I told her at the very beginning of the date, like, oh yeah, just so you know, I, you know, you know, the, the phrase I'm about to say, I struggle with same-sex attraction, you know? Yeah. And, um, but now we're friends, and it's, it's, a, it's a good story. <laughs> um, that sounds like a great story. How, how do you describe that feeling, though, that, I mean, someone, many of us as evangelicals who are brought up gay, I, I try to describe that feeling of inner conflict to people. Um, I, I call it like an inner aching, like it's just constantly there. You're supposed to ignore it, but it's breathing down your neck. Like, how do you describe that to people? Because they always think that we chose to be gay. You know, that's kind of like the conservative right. idea. But the truth of the matter is, uh, you said already, you prayed more than anything for God to take that away from you. And I was in the same boat. How do you describe that? I describe that feeling as being as intrinsically a part of my life as Christianity was. I couldn't separate the two things. There, there really was no, um, you know, biologically, it was just it was just in me as much as my faith was in me because I'd grown up with it and I believed it. And dealing with the the gay part of that, you know, what I learned to do really was compartmentalize. So, as a kid, as a as a teenager, rather, I would have this secret part of my life where I remember wanting, and this is back in the day, you know, when, when we only had VHS and, and I saw that there was an X-rated section in our local video store. Cause we used to rent videos just mm-hmm. filling you guys in. Oh yeah. Just, yeah. 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 So, uh, so we used to rent these videos. And so I remember going in and I was, I saw this X-rated section and I thought, Oh man, I, I got to get back there. But it was such a shameful secret that I had. So yeah. Did you have to cross a that. curtain? Was there a curtain yes. there? Yes. It yeah, was yeah. The threshold. Right. Yeah, Take your entering into the most unholy of unholies. <laughs> right. If you need to tie a rope around your waist to drag you out <laughs> if you die in there. Right, right. <laughs> so actually, I tell the story in the book, right? So um, I remember going in there. I waited for my 18th birthday so I could get a credit card because I couldn't rent a video until I had a credit card. So I finally go in there and I work up the nerve. There's one guy behind the counter. And so I go behind the curtain and I'm looking and there's just all of these videos. And I'm thinking, I don't even know what to do. I don't even know where to start. But, you know, I'm afraid if I stay in here too long, the guy's going to think I'm some kind of a freak. So I'm trying to figure out which video do I get. And I finally just grab one and I walk out there and somebody's standing at the counter. I'm like, oh, my God, I got I got to get I got to get out of here. So the guys answer the questions and they finally go through this whole thing. And I, I'm sure that I'm sweating at this point. I'm turning red and I just want to get out. So I, the, they move away. I finally put the video down on the, the table and the guy looks at me. He goes, do you have a beta machine? I said, no. He goes, well, you have the wrong one. I'll be right back. So, oh, so this no. guy has to go back just wait the here. And at this point, I'm like, oh, I cannot believe this is happening to me. I'm, I mean, I'm so nervous. I can't even make eye contact with this guy. So he comes back, and all I'm thinking is he's going to see this. He's going to know about sex, you know. So he's, so he comes back. I find the rented <laughs> video. I take it home, and then I have to drop it off. And I think I dropped it off before the store opened just to get this, you know, get oh, it yeah. away from me. I didn't want to have anything to do with it once once I gotten what I needed out of it. Um, but there was so much shame. Mm-hmm. about my own sexuality and mm-hmm. yet it was this huge part you know i mean you know we're we're boys we're men you it's you know testosterone and all the things that happened to us was such a huge part of my life that i didn't realize that everybody else went through this too and right. that sexuality really was nothing to be ashamed of it was just um it was shameful because how i grew up that wasn't something we talked about 
It wasn't something we had conversations about. It wasn't, certainly as a gay person, it wasn't something that would even come up. I had to, I had to play the part. I had to pretend that I was like everybody else. I had to right. pretend that I had crushes on girls um, when I felt nothing. Hmm. So, um, you know, it, 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 I just categorized it. I just created two separate lives. Absolutely. Right. The best way I can describe it is kind of like a disassociation where there's a part of your body, like you said, you just have to completely compartmentalize and act like isn't there. Um, right. Yeah. And it's hard to do that. Was there a point? I'm oh, sorry. Go ahead, uh, that's, that's just, I was going to just interject. That's not even, I mean, that's, that is common to everybody that grew up in conservative Christianity, right? Yeah. Because mm. we, I mean, you know, I have that, I could tell a story almost exactly like that as a kid. I mean, I was born after the Betamax went out of, uh, production, but, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you for bringing that up. <laughs> yeah. If you're not sure what a Betamax is, um, the website for it is only it's found on Palm Pilots. It's only on Palm Pilots. <laughs> Palm Pilots. <laughs> Palm um, anyway, Slash. I, you know, and I, I, uh, I remember the first time I like accessed pornography on dial up internet and it was just images and you end up with that immediately, that sort of dualism that you're talking about, that, that, that compartmentalization where you're like, well, there's this part of me that wants everything to do with this, but I have to pretend it doesn't exist. And that's, you know, uh, whatever you're attracted to, like having to, to like totally cut off that part of your existence is going to do some damage. So Mm -hmm. anyway, what are you going to ask Brady? Um, I think it's different too, though, for gay people, you know, that there's like an extra step to it. Like there's an extra sort of compartmentalizing because mm-hmm. it's not just, Oh, Hey, we're, we're sexually attracted in a, you know, when we're supposed to act like we're not even sexual creatures until marriage or something. But on top of that, it's the, the direction that our sexuality is. Mm-hmm. And, and anybody who is in that situation who might be like a leader or a authority figure is going to have most likely statistically going to have more empathy for somebody who's straight because they know their own hearts. You know what I mean? Like they know that they also want to go look up porn. And so, um, there's like a little bit of empathy there, but I I think with gays, it's different because there's this, this extra layer of, well, I would never choose to be like, you know, one of you people, Mm -hmm. you know? And so there's like this extra level of shaming that occurs there. Um, Tim, what kind of switched that, uh, switched that for you to where you had to finally admit to yourself, I'm gay. Wow. Okay. So the, let me tell you this story. We, when I, when I wrote going gay, um, I did a, an interview with our local NPR station and I was sitting in the booth. I was really nervous for some reason. And I was sitting there and she asked me the question after having gone through conversion therapy, after having done all the speaking, after, you know, talking about this freedom from homosexuality in Jesus Christ and living my life and getting married. She said, was there at some point when you said to yourself, I really am gay. And that question sent me down this rabbit hole almost instantly. And I remember mm. in the booth just kind of staring at the, the wall behind her. And this feeling came up inside me that said, no, I could never admit wow. that I was gay. Be- because if I admitted I was gay, that meant the Bible was wrong. Wow. And mm. of, of all things that happened, the Bible could never possibly be wrong. And I, I went home that night after the interview and just I just broke. I just I broke down and cried because I realized that really was the crux of my life was trying to fit my life into this existence where the Bible was the ultimate authority on everything about me, my sexuality, my, you know, who I married, when I married, all of these things had to do with my belief in the Bible and the Bible absolutely couldn't be wrong. So 
when did I accept that I was gay was many years after that. Even 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 when I wrote Going Gay, there was still this this part of me that was still going through this process. And I remember, you know, when when I was dating my now husband, um, we I had just come out to my parents. You know, I had just started to really kind of accept that this is what it was. And, and even to this day, and I'll tell you, you know, what the the age difference differences between us. Um, even to this day, I struggle with accepting certain parts of my own sexuality because I, I look and act like a straight man, you know, I, I, and I, I honed that part. I got really good at that part. I was a father. I, mm-hmm. I, still am. Yeah. I was, I was married. And when I walk out of my house, I, I, nobody would be able to tell when I've, you know, done jobs, nobody can tell because it, I talk about my kids. I talk about my ex-wife I and mean, they, they just make this assumption. So, um, I think there's still a part of me because of when I grew up and how I grew up that still kind of disassociates with the LGBT community. Um, and, and I, you know, I know it's, tough, it's not PC, it's not the right thing to say, but, but that's, that is how intrinsic. Right. 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 That, it's it's that ingrained. Piece of my life was. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, cool, Tim, we're going to take a quick break. Um, when we get back, Tim, we're going to hear about your experience with conversion therapy. You got pretty immersed in that culture. Um, and ultimately, uh, ended up writing a book about that experience and your experience, uh, growing up as a gay man in uh evangelicalism so uh everybody hold tight we'll be back in a just a like 15 seconds in a jiffy there are estimated to be over 630,000 podcasts in the world today many of these podcast hosts producers writers and engineers go unpaid for their work putting in long hours and regular people jobs in order to make ends meet this is bill barnum the host of combine talk with bill barnum Well, you know, we mostly cover the fundamentals of combine machinery, anything from purchasing to maintenance or repair. Each week, we feature a verbal description of our pimped out combine of the week. You know, with sweet flames or American flags or eagles or something. We have a devout audience of about 300. It's more of a community, really. But... In order to keep up with the bills around the house, I have to put in 25 to 30 hours a week at the local Piggly Wiggly. I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm grateful for what I have, but I'd really like to focus on my passion someday. Most podcast hosts rely on Patreon accounts for income, strained to generate special content to keep up with the demands of their contributing listeners. This is Megan with an E, a Y, and an H, host of Appropriated Nails on Fleek. So like, I work so hard like every day, scrolling through my IG for like hours, finding the best hashtag nail art, hashtag nail art ooh la la, hashtag nail art wow, hashtag nail art swag. I have to search like 20 different hashtags, okay? Now I'm saying to get my listeners the content they deserve, and I'm still asking my dad for money like twice a week, okay? Now I'm saying. I'm Brady Harden, co-host of The Life After, and I'm here to tell you that for just one or two dollars a month, you can help join the fight against regular people jobs and make it easier for us, your host, to bring you even more of the quality content you love so much. For more information, visit patreon.com slash the life after. That's patreon.com slash the life after. And subscribe to donate as little as $1 or $2 a month. 
Make a podcast host dreams come true because we all need a little second Saturday in our lives. Welcome back. Uh, we are here with Tim Rimmel. Uh Tim, you went to conversion therapy and the type that you went to was different than what uh, we've touched on in the previous episode. Can you tell us what that was like and what led you there? Yeah, so I went to a ministry called Love in Action, and at the time it was the premier ex-gay organization in the world. It was one of the oldest. Um, it was We had a, a residential live-in program, which other ministries weren't doing, and it was run by a man named Frank Worthen, who was one of the founders in 1973. So this, when this ministry started, there were no other ministries that he was aware of, and he was a wealthy businessman who had committed his life to Christ and then felt like his homosexuality was wrong, and so he threw himself in this church, which welcomed him, and pretty soon people started contacting him and saying, hey, I'm gay, how do I deal with this? So the ministry was built out of that, and it, it became pretty large. So by the time I got there in 1990, it was it was established, and we had two residential programs. So we had about, I want to say about 24 guys total, so 12 in each house. And we had, I, I can't remember if we had a women's ministry program at that point. I want to say we did, but it was, it was much smaller, and I don't believe it was a live-in program at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, but even up to that point in 1990, we were pretty well publicized. So Frank and his wife, Anita, had been in the 700 Club several times. There were did oh, a lot wow. of interviews. So a lot of that was, um, you know, we were kind of out there, but I didn't know this at the time. I didn't know, I didn't know the history of it. I just, because I had gotten to the place where I had attempted suicide and knew that I needed help, I connected with this ministry, which I found, I think I want, I want to say that I found them at a library in the Yellow Pages, which is... Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so I started corresponding with this guy named Mark who worked at the ministry. And I said, look, I'm not really gay because I'm a Christian. I can't be gays, but I do have these same-sex attractions. So can you help me out? So he said, well, we'll come out to a Friday night Bible study. And they were in the Bay Area, which is about two hours from me. So I got in my car and I drove out there and I met these people. And it just felt like that's where I was supposed to be. It, they, they had the same theology. They had the same beliefs, the same feelings. And Frank and Anita were just amazing people. They were just really loving and really kind. And I went and met with them following the Bible study into a, um, they were building a one, it wasn't even a bedroom, I guess it was a studio apartment for themselves in what used to be the garage. So Frank owned these houses and apartment buildings, and he just committed the whole thing to the ministry. Wow, he didn't okay. take a, a salary. Um, and so they just, they met me where I was. And, you know, Anita told me the story, which is it's kind of funny in the books. So I'm not going to do the whole thing, but she told me the story about how she had committed her life to Christ. And she said, you know, I, I always said that I would never have sex until I was married. And then, um, when that wasn't happening, I said, okay, well, I won't have sex until I'm engaged. And that still wasn't happening. And to, long story short, she said, by the end, it was, okay, God, we'll just never do it once. Right. So, <laughs> so we had this, you know, this kind of this, uh, belief together that if I didn't do something about my sexuality, it was going to go down this horrible demonic road and there was no, no telling where wow. it would be. And I'd probably yeah, get yeah. AIDS and die. Oh you know, yeah. So, that was probably the, the heart of the AIDS boom, right? The, yeah. yeah. That was awful. All right. Anyway. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, so, so in January first, nineteen ninety, I signed up. I put myself in conversion therapy. I was twenty-four years old. Wow. And the it was different. And I, there's all kinds of stories about this. And I've heard from guys that have also gone through love and action that had very different experiences than I did. 
because of my age, because at that point I'd been in ministry for almost 10 years, I felt like it was the right thing to do. I felt like their theology matched my theology. Um, and you know, I have to say that when we got there, you had a bunch of guys that were coming from different places. But for many of us, this was the first time that we ever got together with a group of people just like us. Wow. And, yeah. and said, me too. Right. So there was there was a lot of power in that. There was a lot of camaraderie in that. And we really did become like a family. And we really became this group within our own prospective homes that bonded in a way that we've that we've kept to this day. You know, we've I've talked to them. I've actually interviewed those guys. And I have another book that'll be out later where I go through and talk about what are their lives like now. Oh, cool. That's awesome. Um, but for us, it was it was the ex gay ministry, and Frank was was older. He was in his 60s at that point. He barely moved his mouth when he talked, but he had a killer sense of humor. So he would, we would all get together. We'd do these Bible studies. We went through this book that he created on why we were broken and sinful, which had to do with because of a broken relationship with our parents and, um, you know, that we were sinful. And so we walked through this and we all tried to do the right thing. Now, for me, because of my evangelical background, it was very intense. It was very specific. And I, I really felt like God was changing my sexuality. But mm. I, I felt that way because when you're in a house with 12 guys, you don't have any alone time other than the shower. Mm. So, mm -hmm. <laughs> right, so, so th there was no porn, there was no masturbation, there was none of that stuff was going on. So basically what happened is my sexuality has pretty much died and I thought, praise the Lord. You right, know? right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, I, you successfully completely dissociated from your own sexuality, right, right. <laughs> at that point. <laughs> Right. Yeah. That's exactly what happened. Yeah. And, and that was pretty common, but we didn't see it that way. We just thought, mm -hmm. well, mm -hmm. now that I have no sexual feelings at all or very little, right. then now I'm waiting for God to bring this woman in my life and he's going to unleash all the sexuality on her and, and that's going to be the right thing. We'll get married and live happily ever after. Um, so through that one year living program, I really did feel like a lot of things were changing. And for the guys that couldn't make it, we simply saw them as incapable of following the word of God. Oh, um, right. So the blame went on to them for not being able to yes. do it well enough. Wow. Yes. And and that stayed that way. So when you had guys that came and went, it was because, you know, we need to pray for so-and-so because they're not doing so well. But as long as you weren't having sex, you were considered cured. Right. Wow. So, so but, but we had redefined what change really meant. And we lived this life where we, I, I think we understood at least in the back of our minds, what we were talking about, but, but what we talked about when we were together, when I went on staff with the ministry in 1991, and for the next six years, we traveled and we did all these things. We had, you know, we did um, Oprah Winfrey, had a couple of our staff on, we were in Good Morning America. We did all of these different shows, oh my God. And traveled, traveled to all these different places, mm -hmm. and we, we just kept up this front. We kept talking about change. We kept talking about freedom from homosexuality and Jesus Christ. But if our sexuality wasn't completely dead, it had been morphed into this very subdued, very perfunctory um, part of our lives that we did this out of obedience. We did this, you know, or didn't do things because we had faith. We believed in God. So for me, for that, that period of time, I really did have a family. I, I really was able to talk about my sexuality to some extent. And when I was feeling attracted to somebody, I would talk to my roommates and we would talk about what was wrong with me and why I was feeling that way and what I needed to pray about and had this, you know, this amazing support group. Um, and we did that with each other. So and we were talking you earlier about Exodus. So my roommate and best friend worked for Exodus International. So oh, wow. because we shared, 
shared offices. So okay. he was he was the one putting all the conferences together. So we had a really great relationship. We talked about all these things, um, you know, and, and that was my life. It was it was very cocooned. It was very um, specific to what we talked about, when we talked about it, who we talked about. But it felt very safe and secure. So when did you go from being a participant to somebody who's working in the office and you know, helping with the marketing and, and all of this sort of thing, or going to different places and kind of speaking about that, or is it all kind of like meshed into one? No, it was, uh, so it was about six months after the, the program and I had actually applied for leadership and was turned down, but I had been in ministry for almost 10 years at that point. Cause I started, you know, almost as soon as I became a Christian, I was oh, wow. okay. youth group. And so it, it happened pretty instantly. Um, and about six months after after I left the program, I was working a secular job and I went to John Smith, who was our director. And I said, I would like to be your outreach director because we were doing these, I hate to call them shows, but we would go to these churches and we would put on plays and we would do music and we would sing and we would give testimonies and do all these things. And Quite I said, the I stereotype think there. Very much a stereotype and mm-hmm. we were very good at it. Did you do so, musical <laughs> theater? I did not this? do musical oh, theater. Man. <laughs> But I started playing piano when I was 13 years old, and I was still very good at it. So it just it just all came naturally. Beautiful. Um, yeah, just to perpetuate the stereotype. Um, <laughs> uh, so, uh, I was, so, so I became the outreach director at that point about six months after I left the program, and that's when things just just went off the hook. So, at that point, there was a push in politics where they were referencing. Exodus International, they were referencing this movement about gay people that had changed, and this became national. So this became national father. Mm, so when this okay. when this went out, they were calling us. We had people calling us all the time. What, and John said, uh, like what year was this? Give this or was take. 1991. Okay, cool. So 1991, 1992. 92 is when the Oprah thing came along. Um, 91, 92, 93. We were all over the place. We were traveling. We are doing radio shows. Um, and so that was my job was to help set these things up. So I was doing a lot of radio shows locally, you know, you come to the office to do radio shows or we would travel, we would do seminars. Um, and it was because there was a big push with the right wing conservative group that was now being influenced by the focus on the families and all those, the other organizations that were happening at that time. Jerry Falwell, James Dobson, those guys. Yes. Yes, uh, exactly. So, uh, what was the prompt? What were you guys telling people that they could do? Were you telling them that they could, uh, con- like, invert their orientation, or were you telling them that they could become effectively asexual enough to be to pretend to be straight? What was the message? We didn't talk about sexuality. What we talked about was submission to Christ. Okay. Okay. As long as you're submitting your life to Christ, even if this never goes away, will you continue to submit your life to Christ? Will you continue to serve Him? Will you continue to be a part of the church? Uh, okay. Okay. Do, how do you how do you look at that particular part of the message now? Like, do do you see that? It, like, I see that as as a little bit manipulative or kind of just dodging the issue. But what do you what do you think about that? Yeah, we absolutely dodge the issue. Uh, You know, I think now, of course, and I've written quite a bit about the whole change thing um, online where you can find a lot of articles about that because the word change in itself was meant to be something else. And there was a book that somebody drew to my attention called People Can Change. And in the book, People Can Change, which I want to say this is a Mormon organization, but I can't remember off the top of my head. Mm -hmm. But what they did in this book was they they collected all of these testimonials of people that had changed. But on page one, they spent a significant amount of time saying, now, when we say change, what we mean is they and have to so they find it. Wow. They okay. redefine change. Right. So mm. rather than redefine change, we simply avoided the word altogether. So we never okay. said 
God will make you straight. We never said you're going to get married. We didn't say those things. But, you know, when you were in on the ministry staff, most of us did get married. Most of us did go on to have kids. Most of us did live that life that looked like, oh, well, I can be that way, too. So if they can do it, I can do it. And if I can't do it, then there's something wrong with me. So I often question myself about what my life was like whenever I was still inside of convert, like inside of fundamental Christianity and I was dealing with my sexuality. Um, we had a friend who was on um, an episode previous to this on conversion therapy and we talked to him a little bit and I asked him, you know, if you had the opportunity to talk to our guest today who, you know, is part of actually kind of promoting this name of conversion therapy, what would you ask him? And one of the questions he asked was, what was going through our mind whenever we, or what was going through your minds when you were doing that, whenever you were out there and trying to get more people to come on? Because at some point, did you start to realize this isn't, this isn't always going to work. This isn't going to be like a long-term thing, uh, a long-term solution, but yet we're still kind of perpetuating this. Was there any sort of conflict like that inside of your mind? Or did, were you really, really, really convinced um, that this was going to be, the change that you needed and other people needed. I was 100% convinced that what we were doing was right and true. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Same. Um, we do need to go to a break in a minute, but I, I want to ask you one more question before we do. And that is, uh, what helped you make that switch and to realize I can't change myself and I can't change other people. And, and what should we be doing to help that switch happen in other people's minds? Um, first of all, let me just say that I, I did what I did because I was a minister. I was a minister first. I was a minister when I went through the program. And I, I consider myself to some degree a minister now because I, I have always had a heart for people. I've always had a heart for helping people be yeah. who they could be. And, and you know, fortunately, that was that was directed in the wrong place. Mm -hmm. What really changed my mind, um, the, the biggest thing that happened to me was my divorce. When my wife said, I want to divorce you, I, I couldn't wrap my brain around how God could let that happen. And even though I knew at that point I'd gotten back involved with pornography and I, I hated her with the passion, you know, everything <laughs> had gone wrong that could go wrong yeah. in my life at that point. But when she left, there was no more denying that this is my reality. Now I've got to rethink what really is true and what the right. hell happened. Right, right, right. Oh, we're going to totally. hear about what the hell happens when we get back after this. If you were going to die tonight, do you know where Stop. you... Stop. Just tell them about our website. Oh, just tell them to go to thelifeafter.org? Yes, they can go now, even without accepting Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. <laughs> thelifeafter.org. We have a blog, contact page, a link to our Facebook page, and more. All right. Thelifeafter.org. Heavenly. Welcome back. Tim, thank you so much for sharing your story about conversion therapy with us. One thing that I noticed is that um, you mentioned kind of right before you went to conversion therapy that there was a suicide attempt. So, I mean, you were kind of like at your lowest of your low in your life. Um, do you think that had any impact or kind of do you mind opening up that story of as much as you're comfortable sharing? Yeah. Um, the, so, you know, I, I struggled with depression. I think anxiety and depression hit me around the same time as I, I realized that I was gay and, and couldn't really do anything about that. Mm -hmm. So the depression and the anxiety just it, it intensified. And I had actually dropped to about 115 pounds on five foot 10 mm, at, at my lowest. So I, you know, I was throwing up, I couldn't, I couldn't eat, I couldn't keep anything down. And it just seemed like the whole world was caving in on me. So I was still in ministry. I was working as a music minister. 
at a church in Sacramento. And I just, I just woke up one morning and I had been prescribed these anti-anxiety pills and it said, you know, if you take them, they'll cause a heart attack. So I was, I just thought I, I can't, I can't do this anymore. I can't face another day. I, I don't want to, I don't want to struggle. And this actually, I had, I had already been accepted into love and action. So I knew that I was going to go into conversion therapy. And between the time that I had been accepted and the time that I attempted suicide, um, I memorized just books of the Bible. I was just trying to get so much of the word of mm. God in my brain that it would, that this homosexual thing would just disappear. Yeah. So when none of that happened, I felt like I had no other choice. Life certainly wasn't going to go my way. I didn't see how this could end up well. Um, so I just grabbed a handful of pills and I took these pills and I laid down, I was by the, I was dressed for church already. So I took these pills and I laid down on the bed and I waited about 30 minutes and nothing happened except that I felt much calmer. So yeah, okay, thought, yeah, yeah. I looked at the clock and I thought, well, there's still time to go to church, and it is Sunday morning, so I don't see any reason not to be there. So I just wow. kind of wondered. <laughs> and I, I lived in an apartment just right down the street, so I just walked over to the church, you know, and just kind of found. I was in this daze because I had all this anxiety medication, and yeah, I led worship like I did every Sunday morning, and just kind of, you know, I was on autopilot. So that was kind of what happened before I went into the ministry. Wow. And so then after that, you went to the conversion therapy, uh, were able to help them out, do the outreach and everything like that. What happened after the conversion therapy then? You'd mentioned that you got married. Right. So I got married while I was in, uh, while I was in the ministry with conversion therapy. And we, and we had moved the ministry from Santa Fe in the Bay Area to Memphis, Tennessee. And, and we did that because at that point, things were kind of drying up. We weren't getting as many media uh, events as we used to have. Um, churches in the area had heard of us. It was a much more liberal city. They didn't want to talk to us anymore. So we thought if we moved to Memphis, where it's more conservative, that we could have more of a, a an influence on the churches in the South. What happened instead was we found out that the churches in the South not only didn't want to talk about homosexuality, they didn't want to talk about sexuality at all. Oh, right. So my position at that point really changed to doing uh, more counseling in office. I was helping out with the, the residential program, had more of a, uh, you know, more interactions with the guys that were coming to the residential program. And that, that's not my thing. I'm not a psychologist. I'm, you know, I, have, I, I talk and I write. And that's, that's pretty much it out of me. So I was doing things that I was very unhappy about. So I had met my wife who was, her family was a long-term friend of my, my parents. So we had known each other for a very long time. She was staying with my parents when I met her and she was six years younger than me. So, um, she was in youth group and I was the music minister at that church. So we, so we got to know each other, hit it off really well. Um, my dad told me at one point that God told him I was going to marry her. And I said, God will have to tell me directly. Um, so I felt like God did tell me that I was supposed to marry her, and we did have a really great friendship. We moved to Tennessee. She became roommates with one of the staff at Lemon Action. Six months later, we flew back out to California. We got married with all of our families and people out here. We, After we got married, we flew to Hawaii for a week for a honeymoon. We flew to San Diego because I was speaking at an Exodus conference, and then we flew back to Memphis. Um, Right from the beginning, there were issues in our marriage, and and the, the funny thing is, is I don't know if, well, it's funny now, but um, <laughs> I had written this in the book. She, she doesn't come across very well in my book, um, but I did write about it for um, an article in the Goodman Project, and I got all this feedback, and and people said, well, what about her perspective? So I interviewed her, 
And I said, at what point did you realize that with all this talk of change and working in the ministry that you realized I was gay? And she wow. said, she said the honeymoon. <laughs> oh my God. Damn. Okay. That, that was so, it. <laughs> yeah, it's a, like, a little blunt, but okay. <laughs> it was a little blunt, but I'm like, all right, all right. Well, yeah, yeah. Water the bridge, whatever. Sure. Um, you know, so so she knew early on, but she, but here's the thing that was so interesting about the interviewing her was that she said, you know, I could have stayed in a marriage without sex. She said, I couldn't stay in a marriage where you weren't honest with me. Mm. Wow. And mm. she said, the ministry never gave you the chance to be honest, and you never felt safe enough to be honest about what was really happening in your life. Mm. I had created this version of life that was so different from reality because I had to maintain the Bible's the word of God. I'm a Christian. This is what God wants out of me. This is my life as a married man, as a straight man, a husband. Now we've got two daughters. And and so I kept up the facade, but I was really only fooling myself. So about six years, six and a half years into our marriage, uh, at that point we had moved back to California and she had been working I had taken a position as a music minister in Sacramento, and that lasted about three months. That's another long, awful story. But, but um, so I was now back in the secular workforce, and she had met someone, and she announced that she was divorcing me. So it was up to that point when we went through the divorce that really things started to to fall apart, you know, for me when I, I was just I was just forced to face what was really happening. Mm-hmm. I mean, you you gave it an honest try. You did everything that you were told you could have done plus more like you were proactive in fixing yourself. And I use that word in quotations, obviously. Um, and it, it just, I mean, if that's out of the people that you know from conversion therapy, how many of them were, you know, fixed or if becomes straight or whatever, you know, how many of those people were the success stories that evangelicals are looking for? There was a revolving door of success stories. When John Polk, who who was the guy, he, he and um, Ann Polk, they were they were engaged. They were both from our ministry. They were the ones that went and did the Oprah show. And John said at some point, because we interviewed him uh, later on, and, and when he was on the show, they asked him point blank, "Do you feel like you're a straight man now?" And he said yes. And he said the audience laughed. And he said, "I knew when they said that 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 it, that I was lying." Wow. Um, but oh, all wow. of us, yeah, all of us at this point have come out. And when John, I bring up John because he was the poster boy for about ten or fifteen years with Exodus International. Um, he worked with Focus on the Family. He worked in all these places. But when John came out, he was immediately dismissed. They got rid of him, um, and now they're on to the next, the next set. So they yeah. they just bringing in these young people that say yes. You know, I don't know about those other people, but I'm going to make it because I'm different. Um, you know, they didn't do it right. They didn't have the right relationship. They didn't understand the word of God correctly. So I'm going to be the next one. So inevitably, it, it's just a revolving door. It just keeps going. So in answer to your question, um, I know of no one who has stayed in the ministry. All of the staff has come out um, and are living as wow. gay men. All of the staff. <laughs> well, okay, let me take that back. Actually, there is, there are two okay. that are still married. <laughs> Yeah, statistically, all of the staff. (laughs) Yeah, so I don't want to get in trouble. Things are not as they appear. Sure, sure. I I would just say that that things are not as they appear. And um, I've interviewed a lot of people. I've interviewed interviewed a lot of people who said, I'll talk to you, but this is off the record. Okay, Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that's the norm. 
Yeah. At what point did you start kind of doing this counter resilience against the, the kind of conversion therapy that you're a part of? I mean, I know that you've done a couple of videos and I, I have to be honest, Tim, when I was listening to one of the videos, you started to talk about the things that you did when you were involved in conversion therapy. And it almost sounded like a confessional video where you would say, right. we would do this, we would do this. And, and I can... And, I could hear that it's cathartic and it's good to get that out. But at one point I'm just like, I feel like I'm listening to the VHS tape of like, uh, that's going to be brought in court of somebody confessing to a crime or something. Um, at what point did you start kind of doing this counter resistance against it? I, I never thought of it as a counter resistance. I, I thought of it really as research. I wanted to know why. Right. Yeah. I think the, the, the biggest question I had was why did I feel like I had changed for all of those years? I mean, a lot of years where where I, you know, even six years after my wife left, I didn't come out. I was still committed. I was still trying to stay in church. Wow. I was still reading yeah. my Bible. Six years. Um, I had plenty of opportunity, but I just I just couldn't do it. So when mm -hmm. I finally came out, I went into this um, research mode. I wanted to know why. I wanted to know why we believe, how we believe, how do we, how do our minds work that way. Um, you know, I had gone back to school, so I'm gonna, I did my graduate program um, in education, and I really focused on cognition and learning and um, how, you know, how do we change ourselves. So when I was in grad school, I was still under the impression that we were that um, there was something wrong with me that we weren't really born that way. So, uh, so when when I started writing was after the book. I had written the book, which is very cathartic for me. And then other opportunities came up where I was sort of writing for the Goodman Project. I started writing for the Huffington Post, and then I was in you know a, a number of other publications. Um, and it wasn't at that point I was going after truth. I wanted to know what happened. And when I found out what happened, I thought other people need to know this because when we have these conversations, it's very much focused on the emotional part of coming to terms with who you are, but we don't talk a lot about the research. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was very, my, I'm, again, very analytical. So my brain immediately went to, when did we know this? Um, Michael Bussey was one of the founders of Exodus International. We, I interviewed him. And he said in, in 1990, the year that I went into Love and Action was the year that he had a press conference because he, he said things, we saw things heating up. We saw them talking about the, you know, how powerful it was that these guys were no longer gay. And he said, we knew that that wasn't true. So we started talking about it. Mm. Well, Michael Bussey... Michael Bussey was condemned to be this demon that we were supposed to have nothing to do with in the program, but they never explained who he was. Uh, okay. We never learned that there was all of this psychological research that said this doesn't work. Um, the reason that it was removed from the DSM-3 in the American Psychiatric Association that homosexuality is no longer a mental disorder was because they knew. They already knew that you couldn't change it. They already knew that this was normal sexuality, mm -hmm. and we were the last ones to find out. So it was mm -hmm. almost like this, this cover-up happening in the evangelical church, and I wanted to know the truth. Um, wow. So that's that's when I started writing, that's when I started researching, that's when I started asking questions, and that's when I went back and started connecting with, you know, a lot of the guys that were in the program, or a lot of the leadership that I was uh, that I was was talking to. Um, it, it was just to, just wow. to find out the truth. Wow. Wow. Yeah, you know, I always, I always kind of assumed that that whole, that whole movement and the presupposition that people can change was sort of like, uh, Christian saying like, well, science says this, but we know that God is more powerful than science. You know what I mean? But, right. I, but what I'm hearing from you is sort of like, there was a, there was, there were some people inside that were like sweating a little bit because they understood that the science was there and that it was legitimate. Uh, but they decided to just sort of lie louder. 
Is that, am I kind of like getting the... I would say your first assumption is probably correct. Okay, okay. Because, because as Christians, regardless of what it was, we... God was greater. God was greater than the natural sciences. Right, uh, right, right. You know, I, I'm again as you know, an analytical person growing up in the evangelical faith. I didn't know any better. I didn't. I hadn't heard about the APA. I didn't know yeah. about any of this stuff. Yeah, I just yeah, knew yeah. that I was broken. So the way that I dealt with it, the way I understood it, of course, was that God is greater. Whatever we ask, He'll, he'll give us. Um, you know, the whole name and claim it, which was really big in the seventies. And and that's just how I grew up. So I, I don't think that there was necessarily a cover up in the in the ranks of the church. Mm-hmm. I do feel very differently when you start talking about focus on the family and some of those other organizations. I do think they know better. And mm-hmm. I have a friend who worked for uh, one of the affiliates who was a policy uh, analyst there, and she said that as far as they were concerned, ex-gay men were an unnecessary evil or were a necessary evil. They knew they were going to fall. Wow. They knew they could wow. make it. Wow. Oh, that's that's insane. Points, right. And that is so, – start. go ahead. I was going to say, that, that's that's just what we're dealing with, right, is, is I, I do think it's very different in the rank and file than it is in those who are the national leadership. And this is uh, this is part of the of what you're covering in your in your newest book, right? Rethinking everything is that did I get the name right title right? Yes. Uh, right. You're you're part part of the purpose of this book is to kind of tackle the the how the evangelical sort of political machine is is working, right? Yes. Right. That's that's cool. I'm looking. For, I'm really looking forward to that. It's coming out sometime this year, right? Do you have a date? Uh, at this point, we're saying October. It may come out in September, a little bit earlier, but we're you know trying to get through the editing process, which is almost as oh, awful I, as I know exactly. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm really looking forward to it whenever it comes out. And tell us what was the, name of the first book that you wrote. So the first one is called "Going Gay," and then the subtitle is um, "Yeah, My Journey from Evangelical Minister to Self Acceptance, Love, Life, and Meaning." It's beautiful. Ooh, I like that. So let's talk about that real quick. So your your experience with um, with conversion therapy, with it not working, uh, partially your divorce, um, your inquiry into the the history and the anthropology and everything that sort of plays into Christianity and how. Uh, evangelicalism sort of got created. I feel like is a big part of your work. Um, what is your what is your what is sort of your beliefs now? What do you stand by? What do you call yourself? So I call myself a truth seeker, and and I want to say with going gay. When I wrote going gay, it was very cathartic, and I actually had put myself uh, back in therapy at that point. Um, not conversion wait. therapy. No, not conversion <laughs> therapy. <laughs> actually, let me tell the story. Deconversion therapy. If you guys can squeeze this in or not, because what happened, what happened that, that was the catalyst for me was I had learned that Lisa Ling was doing a show on uh, called Our America. She's talking about, you know, religion and, and gay people. And so I had learned that some of the people that I knew in conversion therapy were going to be on her show. And one of those was Alan Chambers, who was the executive director of Exodus International. And so. I was very disconnected from my past. I, you know, had really denied my past. I didn't have any any connection to the people or what had happened. Even on my resume, I just chopped off that whole section of my life. Mm-hmm. Same here, yeah. <laughs> when I learned about this documentary that's going to be on TV or this this show with Lisa Ling, I was very interested to see what happened. And 
so I sat down on the couch that night, and I was sitting with my then boyfriend Abel, who, as I mentioned earlier, is you know much younger than me, and doesn't know the history of where we came from with Exodus and all those things. Mm-hmm. And it, it hit me, and it hit me really hard. And I, I I remember just watching this show and trying so hard to keep myself together, trying so hard to wow. not cry and wow. and fall apart in front of him. And I'm getting emotional. Sorry. Mm. And. What had happened that night was the show, and I would stop the show at certain points. I'd pause it and I would explain, well, this is this person, this is why they're talking, what's what they're talking about, where it's came from. And I really did that just so I could breathe. I just right. needed to yeah. mm-hmm. When the show ended, I um, I sat and stared at the TV. I had these tears start streaming down my face, and I thought, you have a choice. You can either face what happened to you. Or you can push us down. You can continue trying to live the life that you've been trying to live for the last several years. Wow. And and Abel, you know, put his arms around me, and he um, he said, "I love you. It's okay." Hmm. And when he said that, I just I broke. I just I absolutely broke. <clears throat> and I I thought I don't know what I'm gonna do. I don't know where the hell this is gonna end up. But I need help. I need to I need to process what happened. Mm-hmm. So I found a therapist online, and um, <laughs> honestly, he was just good looking, and I thought, well, this looks good. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so I, I went to this guy, and I said, here's, here's the story. You know, here's what happened. And I just kind of like vomited all of this stuff that happened, you know, really quickly kind of going through the story. And he goes, he goes Tim, hang on, hang on. He goes, hang on for a minute. He goes, just breathe. Hmm. Just breathe. And I stopped, and that that moment was so significant for me because mm. I, I stopped trying to run through the story. I stopped trying to tell what had happened, and oh I just started God. saying, "This is it. This is my life. This is where I was, mm. and I, I need help. I need to sort this out. I need to know what's truth. I need to know what reality is. I don't even know. I don't even know how to feel. I don't know how to feel the person that I'm in love with to tell him that I'm in love or to tell him that he's pissing me off because I'm trying wow. to keep everything." I'm trying to keep everything so so everybody's okay, so nobody's going to leave me. Nobody, this yeah. isn't going to fall apart anymore. So when I started writing "Going Gay," it was I need I need to tell the story. I need to start from the beginning. I need to tell it not from somebody who's who's done it already, but this is what I was feeling at this moment in time. And having in grad school, I went through what you know what is called transformational learning, and this is how our minds change and our brains change, and we do things differently. And when there's a change in our, our behavior, there's a physical change that happens in our neurons in our brain. So I wanted to capture that in this book to say, look, I was an asshole at these points in my life. And um, when I came out and the first time that I went to a gay bar, and I was very judgmental, and I talked about exactly how I was feeling in those moments to say, I was very right wing. I was all the way to the right. You couldn't get any further right. I, I voted for George Bush twice, right? Mm-hmm, um, right? So going through, when I wrote Going Gay was to say, I understand you as a conservative Christian. I know exactly where you're coming from. I know exactly what that feels like. I know when you had given all of your heart, all of your life, all of your feelings and thoughts and emotions to this thing that you so strongly believe in, and yet it's still not working for you. But here's what I did. Here's how I walked out of it. And here are the things that I faced. And here's what it's like when you have to get your first AIDS test and you have the guy ask you, is it okay to report this to the, the CDC? 
And you have to make a decision in that moment because as a Republican, I would say, absolutely, these people need to know about this. But when I'm the person sitting in the chair, I'm thinking, this is my business, it's not theirs. Mm -hmm. and, and no, I'm not comfortable with that. Mm -hmm. wow. Right. So, so when I got through going gay, it was just getting to this place of saying, this is where I was. And in the, the final two chapters, I talk about we have to rethink what we believe about God and what we've been told about God mm -hmm. isn't necessarily the truth because there's a lot of different ways to look at that. That's cool. That's really cool. I, I like that that was your progression because I sort of like initially superficially looked at your two books and I was like, oh, these, these seem like really, this seems like really interesting subject matter, but they're like l only loosely related, but they're actually very related, right? The two of them. They're right. So re rethinking everything. So rethinking everything came not only because of my own rethinking, but when after Going Gay came out, I started being contacted by all these people who were, you know, kind of the me too. But the stories I was hearing at that point were wives, they were pastors, they were people who were affected, um, you know, primarily or secondarily by homosexuality or something else entirely, who found that they, they wouldn't fit in the church. You know, some of these were parents whose kids were gay who were saying, I, I had to make a choice between my church and my kids, so of course I chose my kid. Mm. And in the process, you know, having this one social standing in the church, I've now been thrown out. Mm. So. Mm -hmm. In talking with people, I thought, all right, let, let's let's go back. Hang on, let's let's just go back. Where did this even come from? Why are mm -hmm. we so entrenched in the evangelical movement when we've taken this to believe that this is what the gospel has always been? We we believe that two thousand right. years ago it came out of Jerusalem as as an evangelical faith. Um, and when I started doing my research, I realized that that was not at all the truth. No, not it? no. Yeah, right. It's very different. And even though I went to Bible school, I didn't know this. Uh -huh. I learned a lot of stuff. Just, just writing that book. Wow, uh, Tim, I love that you, uh, I love that you call yourself a truth seeker. I really like something that you said. Uh, uh, you uh, written somewhere, I don't remember, but you, you basically said like, effectively, I'm paraphrasing, but the point is not whether or not you're an atheist or whether you believe in God or not. Uh, you sort of said like. It, like the question is more like, does God exist the way that I think he does? And if not, then let's right. reform the way that we think. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and that's, that's the question, right? So I, I was just thinking about this the other day because there was a, a Senator that made the statement in this last election in Pennsylvania about Democrats hate our president. They hate our country. They hate God. And I thought, all right, I'll give him the first one, uh -huh. but the second two. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. The second two, it is not that we hate God. In fact, if you look statistically, 80% of Democrats claim to be Christians, as opposed to, you know, and they're in the Congress, 99% of Republicans claim to be Christians. Right. But so it's not that they hate God, but what they do hate is your version of God, yeah. because your version of God is very hateful. Yeah. Um, and that's the question. You know, we get, I say we, um, Democrats or or anybody who's not Republican or not that far right Republican gets pigeonholed into this place of saying, you're not like me, therefore you are something else. You are something other, you're an atheist. Mm -hmm. um, yep. And they're not all atheists. The, the question is, how do you believe in God? Mm -hmm. I guess an interesting point, right? So I can talk all night about this, so just stop me when you want to. So I found out in reading a book um, by Bart Ehrman that uh, the early Christians were called atheists and they were blamed for all of the awful things that happened to the country in, in Rome. So when they were, you know, yeah. I don't know if they, 
whatever awful things happened to the weather back then, um, they were blamed for that because they were worshiping the wrong God. Uh-huh. And so I, I thought, well, that's very interesting if you look at that historically, because, you know, of course, it's the gays, it's the abortions, it's all these people that do all of this because they're atheists, because they don't believe in God right. that way. Right, right, right. It's the same tribalism. So uh, uh, I wanted to ask you one more thing before uh, we we wrap up, and that is so so Curtis, we we called a, a, a previous guest as Brady mentioned earlier, and he had uh, a couple of questions for you. The second of which was, um, what like what what would you say to somebody that is um, like he's very so he's very active. Uh, it like in politics, and he's an activist trying to put an end, basically trying to make conversion therapy as illegal as possible. And uh, he asked, "What what would you say to these these people that advocate for or or perform um, uh, conversion therapy in in some capacity that you think might, as somebody that was immersed in the culture, might help?" clarify or might help them see things differently? Um, so I worked with a lady named Sam Ames, and she was at the National Center for Lesbian Rights, also running a, um, you know, trying to stop conversion therapy, which they, they've done in about five states. And I asked her that very question one time, because I said, Sam, you, you meet these people in court. She was a lawyer. And I said, what do you feel when you're up against these people that are trying to continue on with this thing that you know doesn't work? And she said, you know what? She goes, I feel extreme compassion for them because my work is for them too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, so that's I thought, great. Yeah. I thought a lot about that is that it's very difficult to change somebody's mind, especially when they feel like mm-hmm. it's God that's told them that this is true and mm-hmm. right. Yep. But I think compassion goes a long way. And, I, and I'll, let me say, just say this, is that as an educator, I found that, that when somebody changes direction, there's usually four things that are, that are associated with that. Number one is that there's cognitive dissonance. So we realize that something mentally is off and, and it's something that we're trying to figure out what, why is it we believe, thing, believe two different things or seeing different things that don't work. Um, the second piece of that is experiences. So when we start to have experiences with people that are different than what we were told, for example, you know, the first time I went to a gay bar or met gay people, they were very different than my upbringing told me that they were. Mm, yes, big mm-hmm. time. Um, the third piece of that is when we have critical thinking. So we're now looking at our mind is telling us that something's off. We have experiences that are telling us that, that things are different. We, at this point, are starting to critically think maybe the way that I believe this isn't quite accurate. And and we start to, to piece things together. We start to go back. We start to look at the research. We start to treat people maybe a little bit differently because we think things are a little bit different than they were before. We can be stuck at any one of those points and still not change our minds. And a good example of that is my own parents. We, we have an amazing relationship, but I know that they still believe the Word of God the way that they've always believed the Word of God. And as much as they love my husband, they love me, we have you know great times together, I know that they still believe what they believe. Mm-hmm. The fourth piece of that that I think is crucial is empathy. Mm. And where we've gotten today is that we have just lost all empathy. The, the evangelical church has become almost sociopathic in the way they treat people. Mm-hmm. So even if they were to get to that place where we're throwing all this information and we're telling them what's true, we're giving them the stats, we're giving them all this research, if they don't have empathy, if they can't see another human being the way that they see themselves, you're not going to get anywhere. Nothing's really going to change with that. So you know, my, my big push is tell your story. Just be honest show empathy, give them compassion and just tell your story and let that speak for itself. 
That's um, that is that's fantastic. Great Thank advice. you. I really like I really like your answer to that question. Thank you. Um, and you actually, if I if I remember right, you wrote an article for HuffPost about the sociopathy of the evangelical church, right? Yes. Correct. Yeah. That's 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 out there if you want to look it up. Um, Tim, you have a brilliant mind. Yeah, I think your work is really important. Thank you so much uh, for sitting down with us. This has been really great. And if our Thank listeners you. want to get a hold of you, they can go to your website. That's uh, Tim Rymel, R-Y-M-E-L dot com. Is that correct? Yes. And they can also go to uh, goinggaybook.net. Okay. I'm sorry, dot com. Goinggaybook.com. It's, it's uh, dot com. Dot com, yes. <laughs> uh so timrimel.com, goinggaybook.com, uh, the newest book, rethinkingeverythingbook.com. So either either one of those ways all leads to the same path. And you also have um, e-books for free on your website. There is one called The Five Things We Know About Conversion Therapy. And secondly, uh, Where Did Your Religion Come From? Yes, those are free downloads. Yep. Timrimel.com. Thank you so much, Tim. We really appreciate it. Thank you, guys. 